You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 417, who's in charge of pop music, record company executives or teenage girls? Why bother with words when we have emojis? And oh no, the drummer's leaving the band. Wait, who cares? That's all coming up after 10,000 Maniacs and Trouble Me. Ten Thousand Maniacs. It could be a reference to the audience at a Donald Trump rally, uh, but in in this mm. case, it's our opening track, the delectable voice of Natalie Merchant. Uh, this this reached number forty four on the Billboard Hot one hundred, number seventy seven in the UK from nineteen eighty nine. A single taken from the album Blind Man Zoo. Ten Thousand Maniacs and Trouble Me. Mm, I'm always glad to hear from Natalie Merchant. Mm. She's always always worth hearing from. I think. Uh, I totally agreed. Welcome to the podcast from the Parish Council. It's episode 417. I'm Terence Stackham, and finding us some time in between her BBC <laughs> Radio 2 obligations is Juliet Harris. I knew you were going to say that. I I, say that it. makes I me sound far, obnox- far more obnoxious than I actually am, can I just point out? But anyway, hello, everyone. <laughs> Not at all. It's <laughs> just, um, you know, you've, you've got more demands on your time these well, days. and it's good. Well, yes, ten minutes on a Saturday afternoon. Well, yes, but yeah, I, I see, see what you point. mean. Yes, yes. Now, um, over, over decades, the way record company executives figured out whether a song, a single, 
would be successful has gone and it's gone down into several rabbit holes of legend most most people know about the old gray whistle test the uh, allegedly referring to a situation where if elderly doormen possibly at the bbc in mm. their gray suits could remember and whistle a tune then it might be a hit uh, then we had a and r men um it was always just about always men uh, in those roles it seems to be a and r uh, artists and repertoire and these people would be responsible for scouting new talent and in earlier days even selecting the songs the artists would record. In the 2000s, new ways of uh, particularly digital distribution and artists taking control has meant the role of A&R, artists and repertoire, has been widely diminished. Now, this week, the New Musical Express has published a piece by Douglas Greenwood arguing that label chiefs, journalists, and in particular A&R people, were never that important. He says that it all comes down to teenage girls. They are, I quote, the centrifugal force of pop music that everyone else simply spins around. So, pop music success, it's all down to teenage girls, Jules. Well, I thought this was an interesting take, actually. Mm. And the reason why it's sort of so timely is that there's been a book released. I really want to read this, actually, yeah. by um, a journalist called Hannah Ewens, um, which uh, it's spelled E-W-E-N-S, if anybody wants to look right. this up. Um, and she's released her debut non-fiction book, which is called Fangirls. And it's um, sort of a dissection of these kind of, of these obsessive sort of, uh, particularly teenage girl fans, who are often dismissed it has to be said by true music lovers I don't want to single out Pink Floyd and Bob Dylan fans but I think you kind of see what I mean it is a little bit the kind of music monthlies would look down their nose at them a little bit I think um but her view is is that she's trying I think to take seriously fandom and music that is liked by particularly teenage girls that it isn't always taken seriously elsewhere so I'm really looking forward to reading that mm. and I think Douglas's piece is a kind of a, a, a jump off from that um, what what I think I find interesting about this is that I think there is some truth in this I don't think that it's fair to say <clears throat> that nobody else excuse me is important apart from teenage girls so mm. I think to take that interpretation of it is taking it a bit far but having said that we often joke me and my friend whenever we watch X Factor people go why is so and so in X Factor for so long um, mm. same as applies to Strictly Come Dancing actually why is Harry Judd stayed so long in the drummer from McFly mm. stayed so long in Strictly Come Dancing apart from the fact he's good and and our conclusion was he had the most he had the two most virulent block votes behind him the same with people on X Factor, which is gay men and, uh, and teenage girls who are the most loyal <laughs> fans by and yeah. large. Strange, and what is <laughs> the take that actually is particularly interesting. The mm. take that phenomenon when they reformed a few years ago now and, and continued to have huge amounts of success for a while. Mm. The thing that I found so savvy about it is that they had realised, or whoever it was that did the decision-making, have realised the loyalty of teenage girl fans, which actually they managed to use that dreadful term that we all use nowadays, monetize this, mm. because they had realised that not only did they have a generation of teenage fans that were now women in their 30s and 40s who had disposable income, the Spice Girls have also managed this to, to, to a certain extent, but what they also realised was that those women were very likely to have teenage girls of their own who were old enough to go to concerts who they would probably take with them and I know so many people on social media sort of people I've been to school with people I've worked with who have taken their kids to see Take That particularly mums and daughters going to see them together and that's I think really interesting and shows that actually teenage girls fans if you can get them on your side early on the same with the same I know I joked about gay men but the same with gay fans as well Kylie Minogue knows which side her bread is buttered by by performing at, at Brighton Pride the other week because she knows you know, how supported that community has been of her all along and I think lots of lots of other female artists Madonna and Lady Gaga are all sort of the same really so I think that teenage girl fans are underrated as a kind of a fan base partly because of their loyalty as uh, more than anything else yes they buy records this piece is interesting i think in that it, it adapts teenage girl fandom to the times so it says for example that that there is nobody more enthusiastic than teenagers by and large or or you know sort of keen to share things as teenagers are and girls i think particularly are more so like that than boys by and large it is a bit of a generalization but i think that there is some truth in it um 
now in the age of social media, you've got these people sharing things with their friends, you know, sticking stuff on Facebook, you know, forming little fandoms. Lots of lots of friendships are now made online in social media, particularly amongst young people, rather than necessarily initially out in the world. So it's, so it's interesting to see that happening as well, I think. So I don't think it's fair to say, oh, only, you know, only teenage girls are, are you know, are responsible for the success of major artists. But having said that, from, you know, sort of Elvis and the Beatles beyond, they've always been a huge force I think and I think that the loyalty of teenage girls is underplayed and particularly from a monetary point of view because if they still like you they will keep buying your records yeah I I thought I wasn't going to be with you on this but then I think I'm taking on board what you say see I've I've seen a number of people supporting the view on social media that um, in fact someone tweeted teenage girls are the best A&Rs in the game but I think it's a lot of older people seeing the music world this way. That, that These are people who became a little too fixated on the success of, for example, the magazine Smash Hits and both its power to influence and um, the ways news spread back in the 1980s. But that was such a long time ago. I think the theory doesn't hold any more these days. In the UK, certainly, you young people generally are not rebellious anymore teenage girls don't have separate music uh, tastes to their parents oh i don't know i, I will intervene a little mm. bit here and say that there are certain artists and again this article made references i think that there is some truth in that but having said that there are certain artists that are still much bigger with a younger fan base than they are with an older fan base now just because that's not necessarily openly rebellious stuff like punk doesn't necessarily mean that it's still it's still the same as their parents i never know how to just pronounce this girl's name so I'm sorry you might be able to help me in this but Billy is it Eilish 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 that's mm. right my friend Maggie and I were joking on Facebook about this because I asked my infamous what should I catch on at Glastonbury catch up with a Glastonbury oh, yes. post on Facebook that got 75 replies or whatever it was which basically was all of Glastonbury uh, several people said they enjoyed Billy Eilish very much although my friend Maggie said she is the ultimate music for 17 year old girls even more so than in block capitals the bangles which did maybe snort with laughter I must admit but but her her audience, when you looked at it, was almost exclusively seventeen year old girls who knew every single word. So actually, I do, yeah, I agree with you in that in that children are do seem to be a little bit less rebellious in the sense that although there are some punk bands that are successful like slaves and idols and people like that but i i do think that that just because people young people don't like music that is kind of smashed the system doesn't mean that they necessarily like the same music as their parents or indeed that every artist is going to appeal to every subset of people yes but i think the people reminiscing their parents were listening to the Joe Loss Orchestra while the young the people reminiscing were listening to the Beatles or the Stones. And those days are long gone. Teenagers now go shopping with their parents. And though, I, I agree with you about the Billie Eilish thing, but I think teenagers are just as likely to go to gigs with their parents and it's may just as well be to go and see a heritage act, you know, Fleetwood Mac or the Stones in the Park or something, as it is to go and see Billy Eilish. So I just think the teenage girl power theory is a bit out bit out of date. I mean it's it's I don't think it's I think the idea I'm gonna stick I'm gonna stick I'm gonna trundle on partly <laughs> with my theory here, which is not not that I think I think that the theory is misguided that it is only ever teenage girls that make yeah. people successful. And I think there is an element in that article of we had to pump this up to make this sensationalist enough yes. to be published on the enemy blog. So so I would put that in. But I do think that that I don't think I don't I don't quite agree with you that that you know to, that kids are more likely to listen to the same music as their parents nowadays. Yes, perhaps Perhaps, perhaps there is more similarity between some of the music they like than the, and and with their parents. For example, Ed Sheeran has success across the board with, yes. with a wide sub, which still mystifies me. But anyway, <laughs> that that is not because I don't. I said this to someone else. Of course, I don't like like it, like it, but just because I don't see why people go so wild over it. But yeah. anyway, but whereas there is still music that, for example, grime is still huge amongst young people. And yes, I think parents have heard of Stormzy, but I don't think parents are likely to 
to go to see Stormzy in a way that young people yeah, are. So I don't think it's, true, I don't yeah. think it's fair to to equate you know young people don't have their own genres, have genres of music anymore because they really do and drill and hip hop and mm. things like that. They're still huge amongst young people in a way that they're not amongst amongst the older generations. So I I agree that. It's it's not fair to say you know A and R still has a still has a role. There. Having said that, I wonder if social media has had some level of change on that because the, when it was first vaunted, the MySpace bands actually Lily Allen was already signed mm. to a major when yes. she had success. Uh, the the Arctic Monkeys more so did have success off their own back because their their fans swapped sort of CDRs that were made and distributed mm-hmm. at gigs, and there was genuinely mm. a kind of a, a MySpace sort of they they caught the attention of domino as a result of that so so there there is i think now more of a genuine kind of people blowing up on social media than there was in the past and it was still very much still controlled by the by the major la- major label so i think that actually it might be fair to say that the influence of A&R people is slightly dwindling because if you can get you know two million hits on youtube on something you've made yourself which is not out of the question mm. then maybe you could argue that teenagers do have, the diy aesthetic has kind of popped up again and maybe people do have teenagers do have more of an influence having said that though the 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 the, the, uh, the roundabout to that particular swing is the conversation that we keep coming back to which is it's all very well having success on that level but all the time ten thousand plays on spotify gets naught point naught one pence or whatever it is <laughs> or all the time and, and youtube's hardly any better if anything it might be a bit worse then what does that really count for i suppose yes i am with you all the way on that now coming next well i can't tell you i'll just show you this emoji um, <laughs> that's right after liz lawrence i talk to you twice a year on your birthdays and Christmases And we connect over late stage capitalist means None of my friends are okay
podcast recently and I really liked it. It just it just instantly kind of spoke to me. I thought it was a really a really interesting song lyrically in that it sings about a kind of a a, a situation that I think lots of us find find in our lives really, which is that we you know we have these friends that for a while are a massive part of their lot of our lives, and then all of a sudden we're kind of we we speak to them on occasions only and they just sort of drift out of our lives and perhaps you never really fall out with them. They just stop being important by accident really so I, I thought this was a really a really nice song and a really good tune as well it's from the brilliantly titled album Pity Party um, it's Liz Lawrence <laughs> and that's called None of My Friends lovely track new to me um, but really enjoyed it and uh, as you say that new album um, is coming and it's out on October the 25th alright oh, okay you can get some of the tracks from iTunes already mm-hmm. I think I try to keep up with ever-changing technology and the new... Yes, we, we all know this. Yeah, yet. so I, I'm, I'm really along with it all, you know, right up to date, and the new stars that crop up within it. Um, but then, on the other side, there, there are some things that provide difficulties for the, shall we say, more mature person to embrace. <laughs> and as we get older, our eyesight may not be quite as pin-sharp as it was in our youth. And so it is for me, an iPhone user with a standard smaller screen. I don't want one of these new iPhones with a huge screen. Oh, yes, it, the ones that are the size of a house. Yes, that's I That's right. I want a, an iPhone that will fit easily into the trouser pocket and keep the lines... You know, I'm, I'm a fashionable sort of fellow. I like to keep the lines flat, you know. And, and, <coughs> this means that when someone, usually a young person sends me a text or a tweet containing emojis, I find myself squinting at the screen, trying to figure out what this tiny dot means. Is it a smiley face? A sad (laughs) one? Is it a face boiling with rage? Or is it indicating a Halloween pumpkin? It's all terribly confusing. Um, How do you feel about emojis, Jules? Do you sign off to your clients with a sticking-out tongue emoji? Well, I have occasionally used emojis when it, when when communicating with colleagues internally and estate agents. So it's not quite as out there as you might suggest. I this I'll certainly I'll firstly tell you this story which which mm. uh, sparked my interest in this, which is <laughs> quite entertaining. Then we can talk about them a bit more sensibly afterwards. <laughs> um, so so this story that was written by L Hunt in the Guardian um, reports it was first reported by Mark McDermott for Easy Reader News. Um, so the Californian community of Manhattan. Manhattan Beach, which is laid back and and reasonably affluent, I think, in places, and and you know, seen as quite a nice place yeah. to live. People have decided to express their displeasure not only with the through the medium of emojis, but through the medium of emojis on the side of their houses. Oh so my this, God. this this crazy lady, I say crazy lady, this um this lady that that eccentric has, we could has say has taken an interesting approach to, to life. Yes, homeowner Catherine Kidd says her intent in covering the walls of her two-level duplex duplex with two gurning yellow emojis <laughs> was to bring her neighbours joy. And um and she says instead of everybody being so gloomy always so depressed always in other people's business i just wanted to send a message to be happy now the two pit the two emojis that she's this i don't know I, I i think it's unusual by the way that usually if you want to pluralize something you put an eye on you can put an eye on the end yet the plural of emoji is emojis which seems completely the wrong way around but anyway <laughs> she's put one kind of laughing and sticking its tongue out and one with its mouth zipped up which is the universal emoji for shut up i think or i won't say anything else right. however so you think they're an interesting choice and you know maybe she just wants to brighten people's day why has everyone got such a downer on the poor woman her neighbour Susan Wyland strongly believes the opposite she was amongst those to report Kid to the city over the illegal short term rental earlier this year resulting in a fine of £4,000 and her house looks out directly at kids from a a few (laughs) streets away both emojis have ad- exaggerated eyelashes. Wyland had got eyelash extensions just before they were painted. So there's, there's something quite yes. quite personal about this. And one seems one has a zipped mouth. Wyland has not opened her curtains since seeing the emojis for the first time. <laughs> Kids' definitely non-targeted or taunting paint job has been re- has been hailed as remarkably spiteful and a weird flex of burnish <laughs> artwork. So and so that aside, which is hilarious that people are now using those as kind of a, a sort of a war of painting them on their houses. Emojis. <laughs> Are quite an interesting thing, I think. Like you say, I can't. You could see them as a blight on the modern world, or perhaps a, a yet another development in how we communicate with each other. And commun and, and how we communicate with each other is something that that has evolved, has never stopped evolving over time, and will never stop evolving. I suspect. Um, so. 
emojis are sometimes i sometimes find them quite useful and actually particularly with communicating with estate agents who sometimes you can find yourself a bit at odds with as a property lawyer because they want to sell the house as quickly as possible in order to get their money because they don't get their money if if it doesn't sell and you as a solicitor want to make sure that you are doing things properly for your client and if there is a problem that it is sorted out so those two things as you can imagine sometimes don't go together terribly well having said that most of the estate agents that are local to me are very nice so that's not that's not particularly an issue but if you want to find a way of communicating with people um sometimes using little emojis are quite fun and they're quite a way they're quite a good way of what i would call communicating lightly so if you if you want to find a way of kind of sort of saying oh everything's all right you know let's not fall out sometimes you can do that by using the medium of emoji which i know sounds a bit childish mm. but sometimes mm. that can that can have a kind of a use to it i know that it is frustrating when you have a small phone perhaps maybe we, we we're going to end up i'm going to pitch this now for dragon's den someone should start selling magnif- those miniature <laughs> magnifiers. You know, those ones that you can clip yeah. on the top of things. Sell those for a little phone the size of a matchbox and will make a million. Copyright Juliet Harris 2019. <laughs> but, um, but so, so there is... They do have their uses. They can be irritating. There was there's some great examples in this article, actually, of other uses of emojis and how there was a... Um, there was a, a small spat between James Cleverley and Angela Rayner on Twitter. I'm not sure if you saw this, um, yes. where James Cleverley, uh, James Cleverley, got around the rules, which means you're not allowed to take a photograph in the park at the Parliament chamber. Although I have seen them before, yes, um, by saying a artist's impression, an artist's impression of the Labour men- benches, and put lots of you know sad and shocked emojis. And Angela Rayner rather cleverly replied with one which had an entire front bench of clowns, which I had to say I thought was rather a useful rejoinder. Um, <laughs> there was a, there's a big debate over Geoffrey Rush's winking tongue out text message that he has. Um, there's been a, quite a, 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 a long sort of litigation. Geoffrey uh, uh, Rush had read, there was a he had a defamation trial against Australia's Daily Telegraph in which he was later awarded um, 2.9 million Australian dollars in damage, which is huge, isn't it? Yeah. It was revealed. That, that he had sent a woman acting alongside... I can't believe this is so ridiculous. He'd sent a woman acting alongside him in King Lear, a winking emoji with its tongue hanging out, with the message he had been thinking of her, quote, more than is socially appropriate, Uh-oh. unquote. Under cross-examination, Rush said that it was a throwaway joke in the style of Groucho Marx. Everything about this is mad. And denied that the emoji was flirtatious or panting. It was simply the looniest, and that is a direct quote, he could find. To quote Perth now, he said he would have used a Groucho Marx emoji, but the range of emojis was limited. However, he was, in a, he was able to sell the entire story of King Lear in 45 emojis. <laughs> I mean, it, they, they, they're not without their... Um, they're not without their issues, emojis. You can, but by trying to communicate lightly, you can still communicate un- unclearly. But my, not exactly knockout point, but my my thing that that I instantly thought of when we were talk when we said we were going to discuss emojis, yeah. it's it's not the first time people have communicated with each other using pictures as part of language, because of course part of the first language that that we kind of know about mm. are Egyptian hieroglyphics. That's right, and cavemen drawing yes. things on the on, on the walls so, so of their maybe, caves yeah. so maybe just everything comes full circle in the end who knows in, in the early days of internet forums uh fora and uh the dawn <laughs> <Very good. Or laughs> yeah. yeah. yes indeed and the dawning of emails um very basic forms of emojis just using the standard keyboard with brackets and yeah. dashes for mouth and nose and the colon sign for eyes it was very useful to convey that you were joking, semicolon yeah. for winking yeah. to indicate irony. And I can say, because the written word is easy to misinterpret, isn't it? Obviously, you right. can't hear the tone or inflection of the writer as you can with the spoken word. So I can see that also in the context mm. of your estate agent thing. Um, so they still have their uses in that regard. Uh, but uh, And of course, we must move with the times. And if emojis are going to actually replace dialogue rather than qualify it, then we have to accept that we're reducing the way we communicate to a a rather finite set of symbols. We don't... Well, we won't give details any longer, will we? We'll just indicate I'm happy or I'm sad with no nuance. And I think that's that's a shame. And in in my case, I suspect 
many of a similar age, we'll need to carry those uh, your uh, patented magnifying glasses around with us so we can <laughs> see, we'll need to see whether someone's sending us an intimate message or just asking us to pick up some aubergines from the supermarket. Well, quite, yes, that is. I mean, what I would, I will come back at you slightly on this and say, and I think this is this is a, a characteristic of some of our discussions sometimes, I don't think this necessarily means they are going to a, 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 a replace. I think when new things come in, people mm. often think, oh, well, that's it then. They're going to replace everything we have, you know, everything we do. And actually, I don't think emojis will replace language. I right. don't think it's evolving to the point where we're only going to use emojis. I just think they are sometimes useful in certain circumstances. And, I, you know, I still get text messages. Not every message or email I get is entirely emojis. <laughs> no, fair enough. Coming up, what happens when all members of a band are equal but some are more equal than others. Mm. That's next, right after the rails. is Cammy Thompson and her husband James Walborn. Uh, together they're the Rails. And that was a track from their new album released next week from the album Cancel the Sun. That was the Rails and Call Me When It All Goes Wrong. Uh, that, that's a, 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 what can I say, a remarkably, uh, remarkably apt sentiment in some cases. <laughs> now, Jules, the, the role of the person who sits usually at the back of a band lineup is often treated as less important than the swaggering singer or the gurning guitarist when i was a young lad working for a music agency we would often get old-fashioned clubs uh ringing us up saying uh yes yes i want four musicians oh and a drummer for next saturday <laughs> uh, drummers are often an afterthought it seems this week though you've been wondering if one of your favorite bands can survive the departure of their drummer 
Yes, it's really interesting. This really interesting piece, which has almost endless angles that you can approach it from. Um, it was published in the New York Times um, about Slaterkinney, about which I spent years pronouncing Slaterkinney, but I've now finally given in, accepted <laughs> that it probably <laughs> is Slaterkinney from the States. Um, they're an all-female band. Uh, they, they were they were a band of three. Now the the two sort of creative. Well, the people that are always painted as the creative forces and Slaterkinney are slightly unusual they've never had a bass player so they've always had or rather they've never recorded with a bass player so yeah. it's always been kind of twin guitars and and they unlike lots of bands both vo- both guitarists seem to be equally lead, vo- lead vocalists so so they just both to clarify play- they don't have bass on their tracks at all I don't think so, okay. no. Okay. I think that's right. Anyway, okay. they, they do occasionally have live keyboard players, oh. but they have. Uh, when I saw them live, they didn't have a bass player oh, or any kind okay. of that sort of thing. So it's always been... Um, it's always been, so when you listen for it, on one of their, my favourite tracks, there's a track called A Quarter to Three, and what is meant to be the bass line is play, clearly played lower on another guitar. Oh, so, right, um, okay. so I think that's the case. If I've got that wrong, but hmm. certainly for a long time early in their career, a great virtue was made of the fact that they didn't have a bass player, and they were two guitarists and a drummer. And the two guitarists are uh, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker, who are both equally lead, vo- lead vocalists. So it's always been very much a kind of a group, in, a joint group endeavour. Um, as a result of which you can imagine it would always be a difficult gig for a drummer to kind of slot into that really particularly as the, the, the two singers I think were very briefly an item when they first started out and uh, that didn't work out uh, but they, they, they've always had this incredibly kind of deep creative partnership and so you'd always wonder how a drummer would fit into that and actually early on in their career they had a lot of different drummers I think they had several and they seemed to really kind of struggle to, to, to have a drummer as a result so you would think that you would have to have a drummer that's got a very clear and strong personality um janet rice joined them in 1996 and has been with them ever since and it's really interesting she apparently according to this article does a lot of you think you know traditionally drummers are just you know the drummer but she does yeah. a lot of behind the scenes stuff she also plays in her own band called quasi and she has uh, produced other other bands as well she apparently is very good at sequencing so she is. She has a knack for sort of secrecy records, and she also writes every Sleetokini um, setlist. Apparently, yeah, it's her right. that puts it together that says this is what we do in in this order. And but not anymore. Have, well, quite. So she rather abruptly announced she was leaving. So Sleetokini released um, a song that was going to be taken from their new album, which is is due in October. And this was a few weeks ago now. They um, all of a sudden. They'd, I mean, to the point where they'd announced a tour. One of my friends had bought tickets for her wife's birthday to go and see Sleetokini in February, I think. Yeah. And it's somewhere like the O... Not the O2... Somewhere... It's, it might have been the O2, actually. Somewhere reasonably big that they, yeah. that, that they got tickets for. And then all of a sudden, a statement was just released saying that the drums left. Mm. And the drummer basically said, I'm really sorry I've left. And the other two said, we're really sorry she's left. And um, the drummer, it, was, it seemed to be a sort of a creative differences type scenario. And I remember thinking, there must be more to it than this, because it seemed really odd that they would record an album together, announce a tour, book a tour, and, and, and you know, a fairly extensive you know, transatlantic tour, and then the drummer walks. That seems very strange. And they were very, I think, clear or keen to kind of stress that there wasn't necessarily a falling out. Mm. But this New York Times album, this New York Times um, article, sorry, not mm. album. Um, so this took the perspective of, um, the, the the most recent Sleetokini album, which I want somewhat ironically now, they realise themselves how terrible it is, the fact that it's called The Centre Won't Hold. Um, <laughs> oh it's, it's, it's their ninth album that's due out in 2019. Now, they've got history of changing their sound and having issues because they had a, they released an album in 2005 called The Woods. Which, as time, as, as, as at the time, me and lots of other Sleetokini fans kind of sh- tried and failed to understand it. But as time's gone on, it's a record that I've really come to enjoy. It's quite a heavy rock record. It was really heavy for them. It sounds almost Led Zeppelin-esque. And actually, I have to say that Janet Rice is one of the loudest 
strongest drummers I've ever seen live. Mm. And actually, the point I meant to make earlier was Janet Weiss is behind the scenes to the point where I've actually met Janet Weiss very, very briefly in Brighton mm. because I saw Sleater Kinney play and she was selling T-shirts. Oh, so that's how right. I met her. So she's always been the kind of the yeah. one that keeps it together behind the scenes. Um, and funnily enough, the song that has been released from the Centre One Hold is called Can I Go On? Um, unfortunately, mm. it turns out Janet Weiss couldn't. But um, but so, so The Woods was released in 2005 and I think Carrie Brown's did in her, her sort of autobiog memoir thing, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, kind of said that she was having a terrible time at that point and the band were pretty much at the point of collapse and they kind of found themselves being very directionless. They did reform and they released they released the No City Club was kind of the unexpected comeback album. They released 10 years later in 2015. I don't think anybody really anticipated that they were going to they were going to come back really and they did and it sold very well and it's an excellent record and, and as a result of which Carrie Brownstein's kind of parallel career being in Portlandia and kind of being a, a, a appearing in film she was in uh, Carol she had a very brief role in that near the end they they uh, accept that they now have a much larger profile thanks to that um, so their most recent album was produced by Annie Clark who we may or you may also know is the performer St Vincent Oh yes, and, yes. Uh, and and so she produced their album, and it could be because Janet Weiss is left. So she, sorry, excuse me. So she isn't there anymore. Hmm. Annie Clark is in the interview. The producer is interviewed, and I think this is the crucial thing here, almost as if she is a member of the band. So so uh, what I take from this article is it's possible that Janet Weiss walked because she wasn't happy with the new sound, which is fine, but I wonder to what extent the producer suddenly started behaving or and or was treated like she was a member of the band and not everybody was willing to go along with that i don't know it, it's interesting to think about you know surprisingly how 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 vital drummers can be and actually similarly i when i first saw steve kinney they were supported by a band called electrolyte who i think i've, I've played mm, on you have before. yeah and they were an all-female band and i remember them being interviewed in wire once and the journalist from wire finding it noting that it was slightly unusual that the drummer was the person that did most of the interviews yeah. the, the drummer the drummer was more vocal and forthright than the singer was by and large and and so i there are lots of things to take from this but i wonder you know to what extent uh, uh, you know can producers go too far i wonder i wonder if that's what did happen here it does seem reading between the lines that the dynamic was changed and couldn't be repaired well it <sighs> In terms of producers, it's, it's um, it is interesting to see how the move of bringing in a new producer can shift the power within a band. Uh, I mean, back back it back years ago, George Martin enhanced the Beatles for years, but by the end, he was little more than a bystander and a button pusher. But um, I was thinking about in the punk era, Nick Lowe became a sort of Zelig-like figure, producing hits for almost every artist that used uh, what was it, Pathway Studios yes. by gaining an instant rapport with the often very nervous inexperienced musicians he worked with but then on the other hand in in, in sort of my sphere of, of interest, when XTC brought in Todd Rundgren to produce their album Skylarking, Todd and Andy Partridge had such massive disagreements, both still talk about it to this day in interviews 33 years later it just seems to happen that in most bands, some members are more equal than others. The Beatles would probably have still felt like the Beatles without Ringo, possibly even George, but they would never have uh, been the Beatles without Lennon McCartney. The st it's, it's, it's interesting because the, the Stones got by or get by without Bill Wyman or indeed Brian Jones. But in the modern era, um, you mentioned them earlier, take that, and uh, I think the Spice Girls carry on with what feels like an ever-diminishing number of <laughs> yes, band members. So, true. Um, really true, yeah. And, and what is interesting as well, and just to pull something else out from this article, and I don't want this to seem like I'm kind of making trouble, but it's something to, to think about. Well, you mentioned those bands, sort of, particularly the Beatles with George Martin. Yeah. George Martin, um, he wasn't a performer in his own right, like St Vincent is. Uh, maybe to some extent, Annie Clark it might must be hard when you make your own music particularly when you're not just a producer but you make your own music not to kind of bring that in i wonder if that was some of that whereas george martin was just sort of a professional producer wasn't he but george martin was long established as a producer before he got hold of the beatles yes he was he became very very well known as a result of that but he was a working producer before that yeah, um rather than you know and, and had a career before now the interesting thing it says in this article is that 
<clears throat> Annie Clark was, is, is, you know, obviously a, a woman in her own right, but it turns out she was a Sleater Kinney superfan to the point where she says, as a teenager, um, she discovered All Hands on the Bad One and promptly went and mail ordered every other Sleater Kinney record at the time and had the posters on my wall, she said in a separate interview. A, a slightly, not uncharitable, but a slightly kind of cynical part of me is starting to think. I wonder if she might not even have done it deliberately, but I wonder if subconsciously she saw an opportunity to be in the band. Yeah, it, it could that could be part of it. I don't. I don't, yeah. I don't know what it is. I mean, it, it seems to be a very sad situation, and and what mm. makes it even kind of pay, more painful for the people that are still in Sleater Kinney is that. Quasi, who are Janet Vice's other band, which she was in with her husband, who I think might even now be her ex-husband, I think. I'm not entirely sure. Anyway, the, the two of them are a duo, and they've been playing for years and years and years. They were very associated with Elliot Smith, I think, in, at one point. Oh, yeah. um, they've announced a mini-tour, some of the dates of which coincide with the Sleater Guinea tour. Oh, Lord. So, that, so yeah. I can imagine how the other two must feel a little bit, you know... It does make me think, God, something's gone really wrong there, hasn't it? Overall, very few bands have their loyalties in foundations of concrete, and often it's a a tissue-thin thread holding them all together, Mm. and only time will show us whether Sleater Kinney will uh, will survive their current turbulence. But now, Jules, once again, you're um, on BBC Radio 2 this coming Saturday, but the thing is, you're not reunited with Rylan, it's somebody else. It's an interesting experience next Saturday. I will be back on Radio 2 next Saturday with Joe Lysett, who oh is excellent. I'm looking forward to speaking to Joe Lysett because yes. I very much like his uh, his comedy, particularly the fact that his his comedy tours are always puns on his name as well, which ah. I think is, is great. Uh, we were meant to appear on the same bill when I did stand-up many moons ago, but I, from memory, I don't think he I don't think he did. But his, mm. um, his stand-up DVDs... Um, He's got two. He's got That's the Way, Aha, uh-huh, Aha, uh-huh, Joe Lysett. Oh, very good. Excellent. Yes. And he's also got Joe Lysett, I'm About to Lose Control and I Think Joe Lysett. <laughs> so I'm quite a big fan yeah. of his, his puns generally. Um, he um, he is um, quite... Um, he's, he's quite interesting in that he, um, he often refers to bisexuality and pansexuality as... Um, Part of his um, part of his sort of stand-up routines, but now I'm really looking forward to chatting with him. Mm. Uh, Ryden had did make it clear at the end that he, he wants to make sure that you know we get to speak again. I think, yeah. and I would like to speak to Ryden again. So I have to quote unquote not let him down. Thanks for that, and uh, and try and try and ensure that I can have another appearance. But no, I'm, I, it's it's a ridiculous adventure that I'm very much enjoying, and it, like all these things, it can always end at any time. But it is just a lot of fun. So Radio Two next Saturday, the show starts at three, and the quiz is usually on about quarter past twenty past four. Excellent, yeah. And I mean, if you take into account the weeks where Ryland has gone to Ibiza and all the, the Glastonbury was on, everything, you've actually this run is extending to about twelve weeks um, in 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 a timeline. Now. Well, yes, although, although I have had three of those off, but yes, yes indeed, that's it, what has I mean, been, yes. it has been. It has been. Yeah, it's, it's been to the point where I went and had my hair cut the other day, and I always get teased by my partner who claims I have my hair cut quote unquote every two and a half seconds, which <laughs> actually is clearly not true, but. But, yeah, I do have my hair cut fairly frequently because it is quite short. But I went to, to see my hairdresser again a few days ago, and she did a bit of she was cutting my hair, and she said, "Oh, so how's everything with you?" And I, because I get on quite well with my hairdresser, yeah. and I said, "Oh, you know, I, I'm on this Radio Two program." Thinking I hadn't told her, and she went, "Are you still on?" <laughs> it's it yeah. a bit obviously. I'm aiming was sort of a Brian Adams styley kind of yes. endless, endless sort of wet, wet, wet style run. I don't know, but anyway, it's uh, it's it's uh, you know, it's a huge amount of fun, and it's a really uh, I really enjoyed getting into this into the show as well because it's a lot of fun and i really enjoy it thanks very much for listening to this it's lovely that you're there absolutely it's nice to know there is somebody out there on the other side of the ouija board thanks to rona and hilly as always and a bit of a sad reason to be highlighting our closing track this week jules yes i am really sorry and band called the the silver jews who i didn't know until my best friend asked me to play them on my radio show one week and then I, i i got into them i thought they were really good um and they um, they were an indie rock band. Um, they were originally formed. Um, there's quite a crossover with Pavement. So Steve Mortmus and Bob Nastovich, uh, Nastanovich, sorry, uh, hmm. from Pavement were the two original members. Um, and then there was a quite a sort of a, 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 a churn of members. But the one constant has been the bloke that formed it with them, who's David Berman. Um, 
and they did disband in 2009 but they they if you like that kind of american sort of alt rock then they are quite an important band for you i think um and they do sound very much like pavement there is a bit of a crossover there with that kind of i suppose what you kind of call slacker rock i guess that that sort of loosely yeah. strummed yeah. loosely strummed electric guitars and kind of sort of almost half singing half spoken slightly meandering lyrics which i like very much i know it's not to everyone's taste but but it is if you are a sort of an indie fan of a certain mindset, it is very appealing. Mm. I was very sorry to hear that David Bur- David Berman had uh, had died quite suddenly uh, earlier this week. So I thought it would be nice to play this because they're one of those bands who, unless somebody you know, as I did in my case, tells you about them, they they never got that much fanfare mm. really. So maybe, although it's not for very nice reasons, one good thing might be they may get some more. You know, people may listen to them more and they may be heard more as a result of which I hope. So uh, this is the Silver Jews and this is Random Rules. In 1984 I was hospitalized for approaching perfection Slowly screwing my way across Europe They had to make a correction Broken and smoking where the infrared deer plunge in the digital snake I tell you they make it so you can't shake hands When they make your hand shake I know you like to line dance Everything's so democratic and cool But baby there's no guidance when random rules I know that a lot of say has been lifted off of men's room walls Maybe I crossed the wrong rivers and walked down all the wrong halls But nothing can change the fact that we used to share a bed And that's why it scared me so when you turned to me Yeah, you look like someone Yeah, you look like someone who up and left me low Boy, you look like someone I used to know Listening to a Parish Council production.